just to give us a context of where we are, some of you have been with us and others not. The topic we've been exploring in detail is this idea known as vulnerability. And vulnerability is something which has, in a certain way, taken the Western world by storm, championed by a woman called Brené Brown, who's extremely become extremely popular and famous and she's written books and she's got a famous TED talk, probably one of the most famous TED talk TED talks called The Power of Vulnerability. And she's already shifted. Um, she's made a major impact on the world in terms of how we view relating to our weaknesses and faults. And her whole presentation is that there can be no authentic connection without the capacity to be open and honest about both um, my good parts, but specifically my failings, which we generally try to cover up. We studied a Rambam, where we saw this idea encapsulated in a particular context, and the Rambam put across the following scenario. You do something wrong to someone else, uh, and you regret having done it, and you apologize. For example, you stole something, you spoke badly about someone, doesn't really make a difference what you did wrong. And you go to the person and you make amends, and they forgive you with a full heart. The Rambam introduces another stage to the process in order for a person to come back, what he calls a tshuva gemura, total and utter reclaiming of his original elevated self. And he says, then you go to a public forum and announce to them and reveal to them exactly what you did wrong. And in his words, he unleashes the secret to what would stop you from doing that. And he says, a person who covers over his dark points, his iniquities, his negativities, and doesn't reveal them, he's under the category of this Hebrew word known as gava, which we've often described is what the Western world calls good self-esteem. Good self-esteem, as we've seen repeatedly, is probably the most destructive thing a person could ever possess because it orientates the location of self-worth in places other than myself, in my money, in my looks, in approval from others. Now imagine this. Imagine what's going to happen to your self-esteem if you go a room of people that you're about to declare to them that you've messed up and you've done so big time. What's going to happen? They're going to not approve of you in the same way anymore. That image that you've projected now becomes totally and utter decimated. And the Rambam says, perfect, that's exactly what you need to come back to your authentic self. Because as long as you're living in a projected image and you're relating to the world by some kind of <coughs> facade that you allow people to see, but the inner person is divorced from that reality, so you are fundamentally disconnected, both from yourself but also from others. And therefore, to reconnect, you need to embrace the entirety of self, regardless of the... Um, nature of your behavioral patterns, even if they have been negative, embracing them is part and parcel of a return to authentic reality and living. And that was what the Rambam said, which seems completely in concert with uh, the idea of vulnerability and its importance in in day-to-day functioning. We then took it further, exploring an idea from Rav Desla, who put across the sensitivity that we need to have in certain areas of our life, not to incline ourselves towards things which will awaken within us negative behaviors, associations, by looking in depth to who we are. 
Rav Desla pointed out, within the Jewish spiritual practices, there is an evasion we try to avoid. We try to avoid even things which are physically dirty. And in any kind of spiritual quest, we always make sure that the room and the place and the environment is absolutely clean. To the degree that if a person wants to engage in a form of Jewish meditation or prayer, and he has within his eyesight, literally in his line of vision, even if it's many, many hundreds of meters ahead of him, a smelly, disgusting, because of its smell area, he's prohibited from engaging that practice. So distant does a person need to be from filth. And we explained in this process that the notion of, of, of dirt not only has a physical component, but it actually links up to a dark side of our own spiritual reality. And there is a part of us that is drawn towards filth. Um, which is even in the literal sense. And we uh, entertained the exploration of a particular form of idolatrous practice, which was widespread at the time, in the time of ancient times. In the Chumash, this, uh, it's called Baal Peor, where the form of worship was literally to defecate in front of the idol. For people who don't know big words like defecate, that means go to the toilet and do a number... Two in front of the in front of the idol, and that would be your form of worship, which shows that that kind of that 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 letting go of my basic animalism in the in the most um, un uncensored uh, fashion was 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 like this 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 form of worship. So there's there's, there's a deep what the what the Rav calls tuma, quoting the Kabbalistic work the Zohar. There's a tuma which is engaged in this filth. So based on that, there's almost an aversion to taking out the dirty stuff and then kind of producing a public. And so how do we contrast these two these two ideas of, on the one hand, being absolutely open about the darker side of self, on the other hand, not trying to engage in things which are, which are dark and, and murky. Um, and obviously, like everything else, it's going to require a decision because the, the practice of, of Jewish spirituality is all, always, always, always about balance. It's always about balance. It's about knowing when to draw the line. I'll give an example, which which perhaps is an oversimplification, but I think it drives the point home. When you, when you look at, let's say, and I'm going to I'm going to caricature Western thought and Eastern thought, and then just to highlight the difference by putting Judaism in relation to them. If you look at a basic idea of how Western thought approaches suffering and how Eastern thought approaches suffering, they they diversely they 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 completely disparate. The Western approach to to suffering is almost it's an unexpected unfortunate, um, something going wrong in life, which of course has a consequence of creating trauma in the person. In other words, suffering is looked upon as something which is an aberration of the norm. And therefore, a lot of Western life is devoted towards removing any kind of pain and suffering from our lives. Through medical treatment, through... um, through escapism, through entertainment, through addiction, etc., we try to, as much as we can, avoid the pain of reality. In contrast, the Eastern world embraces suffering, recognizing that suffering is an inevitable part of life, inevitable part of life. We have two options. We can, we can try fight it, but that just won't bring us any joy because we will always be fighting it because I hate to break it to you now at this early age or middle age. But life is made up of suffering. That's just what happens. It's just really, it's not a, 
the world isn't an easy place to be. It just isn't. It's like things go wrong and they go wrong on a daily basis and then on a lifely basis, like your life can just go wrong. And so, so you have to kind of figure out, well, what am I going to do with that? So, so Buddhism, for example, says it's pretty simple. Release the ego hold. As long as you, if you let go of trying to control it and making the world not give you the things that you want them to be, if you let go of that want, the want that dictates and creates a projected narrative of this has to be, and just, just let go, step away, just dissolve the ego and become ab- absorbed into the gigantic energy force of life, then you will reach nirvana. Anyone defecting to Buddhism at this point in time? Stay with me just for one more moment. So that's um, the Torah takes a middle path. On the one hand, it says, yes, suffering is part, part and parcel of this world. And trying to imagine a life without suffering is ludicrous. In fact, the even says this. Look at this. If you don't suffer for a period of 30 days, you should be really worried something's gone wrong. That's a classic Jewish way of looking at things. When everything's going right, something must be going wrong. <laughs> you, suffering is something that is a part and parcel of this world, but not like the Buddhist perspective where, and the way to deal with it is withdraw, dissolve the ego. It's engage in it. Engage it, embrace it, and use it as a catalyst for self-improvement and growth. It's not random. It's not circumstance. It's perfectly engineered for you to bring out from this experience some kind of advancement, rectification, improvement, refinement. An analogy has been given to three people walking up a mountainside and seeing a beautiful plant growing on the side and the flower is just magnificent. And the Westerner looks at it and he says, this is great. He takes out his pen knife, he cuts it off and takes it home to put it into a vase. The Easterner says, this is great. And he sits down and he meditates on this beautiful flower. And the Jew takes his water bottle and waters it. We're all into tikkun, elevation, rectification, taking the world that is and making it even higher. So to withdraw like an Easterner would be to relinquish my responsibility. To try to control like a Westerner would be only ego inflation and illusion to manage the subtle difference between embracing and manipulating. Control but no control. Affirmation of self yet denial of self is the perfect balance that the Torah spirituality gives us the guidance for, which is a blessing and a blessing and a blessing. So now let's go one step further in this world of vulnerability. And this is taken from an extremely different explanation of a verse in last week's Torah reading portion, where the verse describes what it's talking about the priestly caste of Jewish people, the Kohanim. And the Kohanim have given an elevated status. There are people that devote their life. Just like in all spiritual systems, there are going to be the unique people who've been gifted spiritually, and they're going to devote themselves to spiritual leadership. Within the Jewish people, those people are called the Kohanim. And as a result, they have a certain way of being that differentiates them from the rest of the Jewish people. And in the verse it says, Lo lehei A literally translated, and this is how Rashi takes it, a husband should not make himself impure in a way that will desecrate his holiness. And the way that the 
Rashi understands this verse is quite simple. It's, it's a legalistic thing. It's halachic. That if a Kohen illegally married a woman that he wasn't deemed to marry, she was prohibited to him based on his elevated status because of some um, detail of her past, he no longer um, can be involved in the burial processes of this illegally wedded wife and he has to refrain from getting involved. That's what the Rashi says. But the Ramban takes a completely different different approach. And he says, what this means is that a Baal over here doesn't mean a husband. It means a person of elevated status. The way that the Ramban gets this is he bases himself on the Aramaic translation called the Targum that says, Lo yista'ev ba'ame, which means a rabba ba'ame means a leader of his nation. A leader of his nation should not desecrate, should not um, diminish his position. And therefore the Ramban says, Nachmanides, that this is a principle which is actually much more far-reaching than one would have thought. Because this man, this person, has a status where he's a leader, he's one that people look up to, he should not in any way desecrate that elevated being, that elevated status. And he says it's a general rule. It's a general rule. So now, this comes to almost seem to be a counter point to, to this idea of vulnerability. Vulnerability is this dissolving of the barrier between you and I. When I openly admit the ghastly stuff that exists in the murky recesses of my being, it's the grand equalizer between you and I. When we are both on the same page and that dissolves the barriers and that creates the connection. And therefore, having this requirement of maintaining an elevated status seems the opposite direction to the way of vulnerability. Is there any, is there any, sorry, is anyone? I know I'm like, I've, like, I've switched into this rhetoric ton, tone and I'm like wondering if that's just putting you all to sleep. It is. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty, Shimon. Um, would you like some kind of tonal kind of variation? What would you like? Uh, no, I'm not sure. You're not sure what you'd like? I mean, you feel pretty elevated at this point in time. How are you feeling about that? Like you're just exhausted. You would like to go to sleep. Yes. Uh, n- nothing to do with the content. You just exhausted, or the content is actually yeah. finding it's more dreary and dull. Hey, I got a late night. You got a late night. Yeah. Why don't you just like kind of embrace it and just put your head down and just go to sleep? <laughs> so it's only rude if I think it's rude, and I, I'm 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 going to embrace it. I'm really, I'm, I'm serious. I, I really, okay, there you go. And just think how fresh you'll be for the rest of the day. Beautiful, okay. 
And the truth is that rule doesn't apply to Shimon alone. I feel we can we can all embrace our, our deep need for slumber at this point in time. And if you feel, in fact, I can maybe even facilitate. I will kind of lower the tone of my voice and maybe speak in a way which is a little bit more soothing. Please. We can dim the lights, dim the lights, or, like, or, or ask all of you to maybe shift yourselves into a more comfortable position. Still ask some of those worries and thoughts that are maybe keeping you awake to disappear. And feel that deep, heavy eyelid. Just help it just gently close over your eye as you drift into a more comfortable state of being. Just take a deep breath and feel the relaxation of sleep coming upon you. Just in that gentle state, breathing in deeply and recognizing that right now you can just totally let go and allow yourself to totally relax and fall asleep. Sends the Ramban! <laughs> that wouldn't be good! That wouldn't be good, that wouldn't be good because if that happens then we may lose the beauty in this moment, which is one of engaged exploration of an idea. Because we have this contrast. As a leader, should I reveal or should I hide? I want to tell you a story about Nelson Mandela, the late premier of South Africa. An amazing man. He was once on a plane, a small little uh, plane traveling from Johannesburg to Durban. And the plane had engine trouble. And the pilot eventually managed to successfully pull off an emergency landing. But there was a point where it wasn't quite sure if they would survive and the plane could have easily crashed. During this tumultuous, tumultuous flight, Nelson Mandela sat there reading a newspaper. And after the flight, one of his colleagues said to him, Madiba, Madiba, that's how, that's how we call our president. Madiba, tell me, weren't you, weren't you scared? Weren't you scared when you, uh, when, you're, uh, when you're on the plane? Like, you look, you look, you're just completely calm and you're reading the paper. He says, I was petrified out of my brain. He says, but a leader doesn't show fear. A leader doesn't show fear. But one second, if he'd be vulnerable, he's just sitting there going, Oh my gosh, I'm going to die! Mommy! Mm-hmm. No, a leader doesn't show fear. So this idea of vulnerability seems good, but not a panacea for all relationship issues at all times, in all moments. It seems to me we need to be a little bit more sophisticated in our application of when is it good to be vulnerable, sometimes it's better to absolutely shut off those churning emotions within and present an external facade that allows us to maintain a status of elevated being. And that's exactly the point explored in this verse according to the Ramban, that a coin has this elevated status. And there's another rule, there's another part of this rule. Imagine a person is a, is a sage. And this is really 
kind of jarring for me. A person's a sage, and there's a um, a lost object on the ground, but it's a it's a small little chachkala, and it's beneath his dignity to go pick it up and find the owner. And even though there's a very strong push in Judaism for the care of the other. Certainly in returning lost object is a major focus and has many, many, many different details in order that we should be able to reinstate ownership over lost object. That person, if a person is a dignified sage and it's not according to it's, it's it would be a, a reduction. It would be not a dignified act for him to perform, he's exempt. He doesn't have the responsibility to return the lost object. Because the caring, the dignity that he bears for himself, that royalty, that princely status, should not be desecrated. So this seems to be another emerging idea of dignity. Um maintaining a certain elevated sense of being and not falling prey to the foibles of human difficulties. And as a person trying to emulate and rise above. I'll give you a little read from the the Rambam now, Maimonides, who elaborates upon this in Hilchot Deot, where he describes behavioral rules. And he's again referring to Chochem, a sage. But we have to be open to the fact that all of us, in the context that we inhabit, may have leadership roles. And therefore, how should a leader, a sage, or a wannabe sage, a person who's a bentoya, a person who's striving in Jewish spirituality. What kind of example do we need to set for our environment around us? What kind of kind of behavior should we be exuding in order to be able to perhaps enlighten and inspire those around us? Kishem she'achocham nika b'chochmosa u'bedayoisov the Rambam says that a wise person has a different dimension of insight. He's got a breadth and depth of knowledge which is integrated into the being who he is. He's a, he's a person that's, that's venerable and thereby he's different from every other person on the street. Just check in with Shem. Are you, are you, Shem, you didn't take the... the are you, why aren't you sleeping? Oh, you are joking. I mean, that's such a pity. Okay, well, at least you'll be tired for your mid-afternoon nap, I'm hoping. Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. Mm. I mean, do you, want to, do you want to give another bash? I can try, but I won't sleep. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's go back to this, this wise man who's, who's, who's moved down. Nika, uh, moved down. He's different. He's different. This is really a kind of a powerful way of being different. Can we be different? Think about yourself and you think about your relationship to the people around you and how people look at you. 
and how they take examples from you. So I think many times the opposite has been experienced with people who are meant to be playing an important spiritual role and they behave in a way which is perceived as not in accordance with that high and lofty standard of living. So there's enormous derision like kind of thrown upon them, which a person of a not expected to live in that illustrious status wouldn't be wouldn't be held accountable for. Um, so the the Rambam writes, a person should be different in not only in the what you know and in what you understand, but in how you do it. It should, be, it should be recognizable that the wisdom should penetrate and saturate and influence every way of your being. In what you eat and the way you eat it. In what you drink and the way you drink it. In his intimate life. In all the details of what a person performed. In the way that he talks and in the way that he walks, and the clothes that he wears, and in the way he measures his words, and in the way he deals in business. All those actions have to be beautiful. And um, designed in such a way that they are Exemplary. So he starts to paint the picture of the kind of what kind of what kind of greatness. You know, we think about ourselves and we say we want to grow. And what are our aspirations for? What are we growing into? We all know that we can't possibly become the people we want to be by remaining the people we are. We need to shift something dramatically. But what are we aspiring to? What with our goals line? Obviously, based on your vision you will be able to move into it without a vision of, of where you need to get to. So then there's, there's really directionless and you can't achieve anything. So what's the vision? Where's my vision? What am I trying to, what am I trying to do? The person that we are trying to engineer in our spiritual, in our spiritual quest is a work of art in motion on every level, on every level a detailed masterpiece of being in diction, in choice and content of words, in the way that we hold our bodies and the way we tuck in our shirts, in the way that we look with our eyes and in the way that we maintain ourselves on each and every level, and the Rambam will go into detail, but it shifts the goalposts dramatically. It creates this vision of beauty, of power, of integrity, of leadership, of elevated status. And that elevation becomes so powerfully perceivable that when people will look at you and they'll notice, my gosh, there's something different something so different about this person. He's so differentiated. And then all of a sudden, in those words, differentiation, (laughs) in those words, differentiation, you start to recognize the secret, the secret of what's called Kedusha. Kedusha. 
transcendent living becomes evident. And let's think about Shabbat, Kodesh. One of the things that makes it transcendent is the degree to which it's differentiated. Your clothes are different. What you eat is different. What you say is different. What you pray is different. It's recognizable. Oh, no, no. Shabbos, that's, that's something else. And ironically, the word that removes Shabbos from its status is called Chilul Shabbat. It's a desecration. What does a desecration mean? It means you create an equation that no, this day is the same as that day. The desecration is the equalizing factor that makes this the same as that. What I do on Shabbat to desecrate it is what I would do on a Friday, Thursday or Monday. Nothing particularly heinous about it. But on Shabbat, it means you lose out the whole gift. Because the nature of Kedusha is an observable, visible, differentiated being. Differentiated. And therefore I'm exploring the paradox of vulnerability, which is equation, and Kedusha, which is differentiation. Vulnerability shows how I'm the same as you, and Kedusha shows how I'm so different from you. And I haven't kind of figured out exactly how to go further with this, but I'm just excited by those two almost disparate, incompatible points of seemingly self-development. On the one hand, we have to be brutally, brutally, brutally honest and completely, completely um, vocal about the faults that we possess. And on the other hand, we have to be completely elevated and uh, dignified and not let in to the world around us those inner struggles. Seems to be... Is, is that coming from the, the Rambam, the Rambam's uh, interpretation of um, what, the, 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 what the Kohen... Mm, mm, mm. That's, where, that's one of our sources. It's, it's the Ramban, it's the Sifarno says the same thing, and it's further extrapolated by Rabbi Yeruchim Levov, it's the great Mashkech in the mirror, and he kind of puts it down to even B'nai Torah, they have to, they have to be, people should look at them and say, which is actually a medrash, they, they should look at the person, they should look at you, and they should, whoa, this guy, he's just a different, different person, I'm so happy that his Rebbe taught him Torah, I'm so happy that, you know, the Torah is such a powerful thing, um, happy is the one that, that learns Torah. In other words, it becomes like a manifestation of, of a, he becomes almost a conduit of spiritual life that becomes so, so observable to the, to the world around that. There's something different going on here. This is awesome. So that's just uh, challenging, challenging ourselves to, we'll explore this obviously future, in the future, but that's, that's a lovely kind of diversity in, in, in being, like playing like these divergent roles and how does one begin, you know? Is your head still sore? Oh, well, uh, anyway. It wasn't bad. Okay, no, I think no. I got the, I got the bad bad side of that. Uh, yeah. Okay, so are we good? Is is that something to think about? Thank you for your time and patience, and may you be blessed.